0: Welcome to Sculpture Vulture. I'm Lucy Branch, a sculptural conservator and author, bringing you a series of interviews with some amazing sculptors who inspire me and I hope will do the same for you. You can see the photographs accompanying the interview, the episode show notes and get a free novel from sculpturevulture.co.uk. Hello Sculpture Vultures and thank you for joining me. Oh, today's gonna be the last episode of the season and I have drawn the season to a close earlier than I had anticipated doing. And I'm afraid that's just because life has sent me a bit of a curveball. I mentioned it a few weeks ago, but it's one of those things that, you know, you can't see coming and I'm afraid that, in the short term at least, I need to devote myself entirely to that matter and although I had contacted loads more brilliant sculptors who I really felt had a lot to to tell us all and to give us, they are going to be put on the back burner for the short term, hopefully all to be returned to at some point. But it has all come to teach me something that there is only 24 hours a day, and some of those we should be sleeping. And my work continues apace in the, what feels like the background at the moment rather than the foreground, which is actually at the moment a real challenge to manage, but it's also a great gift. And frankly, I think that if I didn't have work at the moment, I might go completely raving mad. It's such a wonderful thing that I do. I mean, Monday I'm at Hampton Court Palace looking after their historic sculpture collection. I mean, can you imagine a more beautiful place to be working and more fantastically significant objects and sculpture all in one? relatively small place not that small let me tell you walk from one side to the other you're practically finished for the day just having done a done a trip from one sculpture to the other but you know but relatively speaking and actually it is it's a lesson this it's a realization as everything is in life often that when life is tough when circumstances are difficult i think the creative life can't be beaten it's like no other because what other job do you slip through the kind of fissures in this existence and escape somewhere else and lose yourself so entirely in your own imagination in your own worlds and I've got friends that work in so many diverse jobs, I mean, brilliantly successful people. But when we talk about our work, that isn't something that they bring to the fore that they might talk about the amazing money, the security, how they may talk about all sorts of things about helping people and, and, um, you know, complicated things that they are handling. But really, it's the creative life that offers a kind of gateway away from your troubles, if you have them, or from the day-to-day and the kind of work where actually at the end of the day you can come out even more energised than you were at the beginning because it's excited you so much, it's fueled you so much and that's what then is giving me the strength, at least, to be able to tackle the other tough stuff that's there right now. But there is some good news. The good news is that I have the most brilliant sculptor to round up the season, and that is David Brewer-Wheel. David Brewer-Wheel is a painter and sculptor. His works have been installed in major public spaces in London, including Hampstead Heath, Hanover Square, Grosvenor Gardens, and Marble Arch among many others, and his work can't help but stop you in your tracks. It's not of this world, it's fragmented parts of things, it's out of another dimension. I began our conversation today by asking when sculpture first came into his life.
1: Well, it was pretty early on, actually. I remember as a kid, I went to the Camden Arts Centre. Uh, they had a like, class uh, of clay, doing clay work. And I remember making a bird's nest out of clay with little eggs and feeling that magic of turning clay into something almost like living or into forms, you know, little uh, eggs and birds and uh, little creatures. So that was quite a strong memory. And, And there was a second memory associated with that. In school, they gave us a brown paper bag and told us to make something out of it. And I remember very clearly making a cat's head out of them and thinking, wow, that's so nice to transform something, kind of throwaway into an object. No, but also I had, I had it in the family because my father is a sculptor and a jeweller. So I grew up with it in the family as well. And did he encourage you? Yes, I would say so. Uh, I mean, he told me it was a difficult life for sure, but he, uh, he did encourage me.
0: Yeah, I think often actually uh, when there's somebody around you th- that is kind of creative as well, uh, I- I've never heard anyone say it's an easy life. <laughs> it's yes, always that's right. Yeah. <laughs> but but nearly always wants to share it with somebody else. I, I know my own son is uh, thinking of going to art as well, although everybody else advises him to go into engineering, which I think would yes. be very dull.
1: All right, <laughs> uh, right, absolutely. Well. Maybe a bit of both.
0: Yes, yes, that's yeah. true. There certainly is that in uh, bronze anyway.
1: Um, yeah, absolutely.
0: And so was there uh, a sort of development uh, that happened through school for you or did it come later?
1: Well, it kind of came later. So I was doing a lot of drawing and and, and some painting as well. And then I went to the Central St Martin School of Art. And when I was there, quite quickly... Um, uh, I mean, I've always painted as well as sculpted, but I, we're very close to the British Museum there. And I used to go to the British Museum a lot, look at the Egyptian and Greek and Roman and Cypriot uh, sculpture. And that was a big inspiration. And I kind of started making sculptures even then that are quite similar to what, what I'm doing now. And I had a great teacher, who his name was Shelley Fawcett. Uh, he he was actually one of Henry Moore's assistants. So there was that connection to sort of older uh, British sculptors.
0: Yeah. And so it was something that you regularly went to, the British Museum, and kind of enjoyed all those freedoms that I think think there aren't anymore. You can't just potter off the the street now and visit anything. You've got a book.
1: (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. No, so the British Museum has always been a kind of mainstay because you see that Something like sculpture really is a kind of timeless pursuit and, um, you know, art changes with time. Uh, but I have a sense that probably that's quite an eternal art form. Mm-hmm. And how did you find St Martin's? Well, it was... Uh, I, I liked it. A, lo- a lot of people kind of dropped out after a while. Uh, but um, I, it, was, it at that time, it was in... Um, in Hoban, in uh, Southampton Row, yeah. uh, the, the large building. So it had all these big stu- empty studios A lot of people, a lot of the students didn't even show up. So I had these big studios to myself half the time. So um, that that was really good. Uh, yeah. And I started working with plaster then, uh, which is a great medium.
0: Yeah, definitely. I could I could see it with your style because your work is quite textured very often. That's right. So yeah. actually plaster would be wonderful for Thing, you know, sort of shaping that kind of uh, surface.
1: Um, no, absolutely. What, what what I used to do is pour these these pails the of plaster on the floor, make these big sheets of plaster, and then smash them up into little broken bits, and then assemble the figures out that. And that started even then. I still do that, like that started even then.
0: Wow. So almost like mosaic. It's kind of sculpture.
1: Uh, it is a bit. It's a bit more. It's a bit more like broken glass, I would say. Uh, It's not glass, it's plaster, but it's that sort of shattered, kind of almost aggressive look, but then you kind of lovingly put it back together again. And that that can give a piece a lot of uh, texture and detail.
0: Uh, It sounds to me like you're a frustrated restorer, actually. (laughs) Oh, in some
1: ways, yes, in some ways. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely that element.
0: Uh, So uh, was it straight out of college that you managed to make a career of it or was there a few twists and turns along the way?
1: There are definitely twists and turns. I mean, in terms of sculpture, um, I obviously it's very expensive to make sculpture in bronze. So early on, I was making out actually I was using raw stone that I put together with resin uh, and assembled that way. Um, But in the early stages of my career, I I was also working part-time at Sotheby's um, in various departments. So um, that that was helpful. And actually, in terms of large-scale sculptures, it's really only in the last 12 years that I've gone really public with that. It was mainly painting and drawing before it.
0: But was that always there? Were you always in the back of your mind thinking, I'd like to produce something large?
1: Yes. So the the early influence, for sure, is I used to go with my mother to visit Stonehenge and the Averbury Stone Circles. Magnificent, yeah. Yeah, those sort of prehistoric monuments. And it was always, like, in my gut, I'd like to do something kind of monumental, uh, kind of based on that kind of look, you know, kind of monolithic images. And uh, that's kind of what I started doing around 2010. Uh before that, I, I had been doing these large kind of installations of interrelated paintings called The Projects. That was a series of exhibitions held at various venues like the Roundhouse uh, and Oxo Tower. And those are kind of subterranean, kind of almost like cave paintings. I
0: Brilliant spaces there, though.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah.
0: It kind of amazes me that Sotheby's didn't get their hooks into you and keep you rather than, you know, because when you're getting your bills kind of paid by that kind of work, which is wonderful as well, yeah. uh, it's yeah. it, it's it's slightly safer than being a, a professional artist, isn't it?
1: Well, I think like in art college in St. Martin's, pretty much all the uh, artists that were teaching us had like teaching work as well. Uh, and generally... A lot of younger artists come to me and ask me about, you know, what what they're going to do and what they want to do. And I always say, if you don't want to ruin your work, it's not such a bad thing to have something else um, to maintain you in the early years. I mean, later on it might take off a bit, and you're, you know, you earn some money out of it. But it's fairly rare, I think, for a, an artist to be completely self-sufficient from the very word dot, um, and almost perhaps irresponsible of the colleges not to teach them that. Yeah,
0: and I, actually you do learn lots of skills from other types of work, don't you? Which, which becomes yeah. useful if you're going to run your own show later on.
1: Well, yes, I mean, I often compare it to writers. You know, some of the greatest writers in history had other work as well. Yeah. Um, And that actually enriched their work because it gave them subject matter often. You know, sitting in a studio all day long doesn't necessarily give you subject matter to get your teeth into. Uh, So now I understand making art can take... Well, actually, writing a book is pretty time-consuming too, so it is a good comparison. Mm.
0: you know. And so do you remember that first piece of work that you sold? Do you remember that first job that kind of... Uh, or has it paled into insignificance now?
1: <laughs> well, uh, actually, I I sold from quite early on. Like when I was very very young, even in my teens, I was painting a lot, and they actually sold fairly fairly well. I think the thing to know what most artists need to know is that you can. It's not consistent. You know, you can have a really great period of either producing or or selling, and then that changes and can go away and then come back. It's not it's not necessarily a consistent thing. So I've had kind of many of those moments where suddenly, wow, look at that, look, look, look what I've sold or look what's gone out there. And that's great. But it's a, it's a question of keeping it going in, in the long term.
0: Yeah, momentum is yeah quite yeah. a hard thing to yeah. sustain. And so what do you think it was that kind of gave you traction then?
1: I had these sort of like very strong vision about what I wanted to do, and I think probably the first really, I mean, I did a lot of shows in galleries like the Boundary Gallery and and different, I I was always showing in in these galleries, uh, commercial galleries, but what I think really gave the punch was in 2000, I did this big show at the Roundhouse called The Project, which was of 70 really vast canvases Mm -hmm. interrelated, um, which was a vision I'd had that I really wanted to do this very, very ambitious installation of paintings that really made a point about history and identity. Um, And that, I think that kind of, I I suppose it created a kind of wow factor that that then carried me through after that.
0: It's a big space there, isn't it? You would would have to have a really big vision to to fill it actually. I mean, from what I've read about your work, um, I understand that there's lots of stages to it. It's a sort of journey before you get to the sculptural part, maybe. Would would you agree with that?
1: Oh, yes. I mean, because a lot of my work's pretty, it's very physical, but it's also very conceptual. So, for example, there's a piece called Brothers, where two figures share one mind. And that ended up being a really large sculpture that was shown in Marble Arch for for, for quite a long time. Uh, But that started its life as a tiny little drawing when I was a teenager. Based on the fact that my brother and I used to share the same dream quite co- continuously. so that starts as a very small little sketch, a little drawing, and then I may have painted it or made small sculptures. and then finally it ends up as this you know large bronze piece. So yeah, a lot of my work has, has those phases because they have a kind of conceptual or idea-based uh, origin.
0: I love that idea that it sort of drifts through different mediums, yes, and then, yeah, yeah. and then you know maybe bronze is the most permanent material, perhaps that that yeah. there is, and so then it that's it, it's the full stop.
1: <laughs> well, absolutely, and also the thing about large outdoor sculptures is, in a, in some way, they're quite different to painting or drawing, where you may have quite complicated composition, but I think for an outdoor sculpture to really work. It has, it's very immediate, it has to be, you know, you see it from a distance, it's got to click, so you've you really got to condense all those elements into one kind of monumental, uh, thinking back again to like Stonehenge, one very, very, very kind of iconic image uh, into which you've condensed all those thoughts from previous things. A painting can be, you know, kind of more meandering, if you like, more complex. The sculpture has to be very, very immediate.
0: Yeah, and I I actually think that there's something about paintings, which they're in a space that you have to choose to walk into. You have to be the sort of person that wants to engage with paintings to be there. With public sculpture, it, it... If you do it right, (laughs) I think it can just capture such um, a different audience and make people cross that boundary towards art, which they just possibly wouldn't do if they had to walk through into an institution or even a private gallery or something. that's,
1: That's very, very true. And that's partly why I moved from these big installations of paintings, because people had to come to them. And I found actually, you may have I don't know 10,000 people coming to a show like that, but if you have a public sculpture in the middle of London, you may have 10,000 people seeing it every two, three days, most of them without even realizing it. or yeah. a lot of people will know the sculpture and not know the artist, but I kind of like that because you're communicating with people who don't didn't necessarily expect to see it, like you say. Um, and that's, in a way, it's the ultimate street art. It's the ultimate de- democratic art. So, and especially if the sculpture is not just decorative, if it has some kind of thought or idea behind
0: it. I see a lot of humour in your work. I-, I wondered if that was your intention or, or whether that's just my own projection.
1: I, I studied a lot of Shakespeare. This, this is going to fu- sound funny. <laughs> and the thing, the thing we find with Shakespeare is that often uh, tragedy and comedy are kind of other sides, different sides of the same coin. Um, What's that about is humanity, you know, kind of almost like the absurd nature of the human condition which is both tragic and comic. So for example some of my pieces like you've got these giant feet sticking out the ground. It certainly has humour but there's also I think a a kind of more um, intense side to it. You know, the idea of the outsider or the alien that kind of thing so there tends to be a double element of both humour and uh, the other side in my work that's quite that's quite a characteristic of it i would say
0: and so what's it mostly about for you is it each uh, project has a different theme or do you have something overarching that's always in your work
1: well i mean i've got this private um, kingdom a sort of imaginative world called nerak which I sort of started when I was about 15, and it's a world of the imagination which has different artists that I make up, um, and even different characters and different countries and identities. Um, So there's a very, very big iconography in my body of work, in the drawings and the paintings, which is, it's really like a whole kind of alternative universe. So different bodies of works tap into that in different ways. They do express, I mean, often my work expresses something of the moment we're in. So, for example, during COVID, I did a work called The Coviad, which is a very, it's a vast drawing in pencil and gold leaf based on the Bayeux tapestry. And it tells the story of, you know, the last 18 months of COVID uh, as a kind of panorama. So that's an example of something very specific. And I do sometimes sort of engage with current affairs in that way.
0: So I've really never heard of that on an artistic level. I've heard many writers have... uh you know whole worlds and even people other people might take characters from their worlds and sort of spin off things but i haven't heard about that from from a sculptor's point of view and and it makes complete sense actually (laughs) you know well yes
1: i mean a lot of the sculptures are actually characters who've sort of Uh, drifted off from my internal world and sort of landed in the real world Uh, maybe that's partly, you know, a lot of them are called alien maybe that's really what the aliens are to some degree they're coming out of the imaginative world into the real world so a lot of the sculptures are actually characters from my uh, imaginative world
0: Oh, that's fa- do you Do you have to keep track of them? I find that writing that I do, I have to mm. make sure that I don't forget details about certain characters. Otherwise, somebody can end up with blue eyes who previously had brown eyes or something no, no, like that.
1: For sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think in, in a way, fiction writing is, is more difficult in that particular way because you need to be consistent with, with art. Those sort of transformations or inconsistencies can be quite okay and quite creative even. So I I think it's slightly different in that respect, but yeah, yeah, I I do have to keep tabs to some degree.
0: And do you have any kind of creative routine or practice that helps you kind of access where you want to be when you're creating a
1: sculpture? Uh, Well, I I would say I have ways of sort of entering into the unconscious, and that's when I'm sort of sketching or, or designing new works. Um, I kind of go into a state where I'll try and access the unconscious. Uh, But actually, at other times, and this is going to sound completely crazy, it's almost a a visionary thing. So as an example, um, this Coviad work that I did based on COVID was inspired by, I've got a little book about the Bayeux tapestry. And just picking it up, I suddenly got, I can only describe it as a sort of vision. Of what this thing would look like, and then I'll work towards it. So, I think the mind plays interesting tricks, but can also do wonderful things by giving you a kind of inspiration or vision of what you want to do.
0: So, you actually give yourself time and space to sort of dream or vi- or or envisage something that you're not sure about what it is yet.
1: Yeah, and I think that that and that comes down in all sorts. I mean, I'm just watching a programme about American inventors like Edison, who invented the light bulb. Mm. And I think all, any kind of where you're exploring new ter- territory, you have to sort of open up, be open to things that are not there yet. Um, and that's kind of a state of mind, you know, just to open yourself up to those ideas or thoughts that are not quite there yet.
0: A and sort of discovery is, path.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, that, absolutely right. Yeah. And that and that's, and, and one of the ways of doing that, if you have a little sketchbook, I, what I do is I jot down ideas with no censorship at all. You know, normally, when we draw something, we kind of stop ourselves from, you know, or kind of self censor. And I don't, I just absolutely the first thing that comes into my mind, just scribble it out.
0: Right, And then it's there and it may fade into the background or it might become something.
1: Well, yeah, the vast majority of these scribbles become nothing, Um, you know, that for every sculpture or painting or or even drawing that is finished and complete, there's a lot more behind it, things that never make, make it past that stage.
0: Yeah, I find with a lot of my plot lines that it has to be something that keeps coming back to me, a bit boomerang-like. Mm. If it keeps reappearing in maybe slightly different forms, then I think, oh, I'm supposed to take notice of that. <laughs>
1: because. Uh, that's, that, and that's really interesting, what you're saying, because... I find that, you know, I keep little albums of early drawings. Some of them are tiny, like postage stamps. Yeah. And I often find that things have come back again and again and again over many years, you know, the same image. So that has to have some kind of meaning.
0: Yeah. It's it's knocking on the door. It wants to come in.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: (laughs) And so has it been a good career for you? Has it been fulfilling or has it been, you know, at times very frustrating?
1: Look, I think there are very few things as fulfilling as as that. Um, And for all the ups and downs, you know, I I have like friends who, let's say, went into law or, or other things. And once they leave the company, often you feel it may have been, you know, a satisfying career in certain ways. But often people don't have that much to show for it. And I think with something like this, for all the uh, struggles involved, you actually feel you've really got something to show for it at the end or something, uh, maybe not even that, but just that you, you've been able to express a small part of yourself. Uh, somebody once said to me, uh, when thinking about these things, you can say to yourself, it's a small thing, but it's my own.
0: Good saying.
1: Yeah, it's a good saying. Yeah,
0: eh? Very yeah. good. <laughs> It's taken a while to get to where you're at now, but is there further that you're hoping to go to? Have you got your eye on some spaces that you'd like your sculpture to be in that they haven't already (laughs) adorned?
1: I I mean, I'm quite satisfied with the spaces I've had in England, let's say, and in a few other countries too. Uh, I'm probably looking... I've got some pieces in in America as well, Uh, but I'm always... Actually, funny enough, what, what I've been doing very recently is taking photographs. I've been able to travel again in, in France and in America and a couple of other places. And what I do is I take photos of spaces and actually paint in on the photo an image of a sculpture that I would dream of having there. Mm-hmm. And um, I may even issue those as NFTs. <laughs> Talking of NFTs. because No, because they're sort of virtual sculptures
0: yeah you know. very nice idea i love that <laughs> yeah
1: yeah
0: but also it's i mean i suppose it depends whether you believe in these kind of things and i i don't know if it's it works or not but you know that thing of envisaging something so clearly that you kind of manifest it that it might yes. bring it forward yeah. if you've got it that yeah clearly what's in your that mind?
1: film if you build it they will come yeah there's
0: something, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, something yeah, yeah. of dreams field of dreams yeah, field of
1: dreams yes exactly <laughs> yeah.
0: oh yeah. but um i think there's more probably i think more to it than that but uh all yeah. the under the work that goes on behind the scenes to bring things about but um oh yes
1: yes i mean the only thing i would say in some ways having been a painter and a sculptor in some ways being a sculptor is more straightforward because there's a lot less competition, I would uh, say, talk about it very practically, mm-hmm. um, because there's not that many people doing, I would say, um, strong public sculptures, even globally. Uh, there's, there's an awful lot of very good painters out there.
0: And I think there's a real appetite for it. I, I know that yeah. um, sculptures, some types of sculptures had quite bad press, but there is mm. a love of sculpture, a deep love uh, of sculpture in, by, in the public sort of hearts. The amount of people we have who return over and over again to see certain sculptures, Yes. you know, we, we get to sort of be very, sort of maybe aware of that because they come to talk to us because they want to know what we're up to. So I, I think that, um, yeah, that's only going to get stronger, I think.
1: Well, I, I think you're right, and I think it's partly to do what we were saying about British Museum. You know, this art form goes back thousands of years to the very dawn of history. Yeah. And there's, there's no reason to think that that will change just because there have been changes in art history in the last 150 years. I I think that's kind of a short-term view, because this is an eternal art form, or seems to be an eternal art form.
0: Yeah, very much so. Is there anything you've got going on at the moment? Any interesting projects?
1: No, we just installed a new sculpture in uh, just opposite Euston Station uh, at St Pancras. Um, It's a piece, actually it's my largest sculpture, it's called Flight. And it shows a flying person kind of taking off, which it may be coincidental, but it's kind of symbolic. Or it was at least until this week of, you know, somewhat a return to normal you yeah. know, in terms of travel.
0: Oh, I'll be trotting that. over there tomorrow then. I'm, I'm at UCL tomorrow. So it's uh, uh, just at Bloomsbury. Okay. So I'll pop over and
1: have a look. Yes. And part of it is to do with light. Uh, so it's getting dark uh, earlier now. Yeah. Um, And a a major part of it, in my mind anyway, is the lighting. So you see the shadow of the sculpture with the real sculpture. I like that interplay between the very physical sculpture and then the sort of shadow and the light interaction at night. So because it's it's against this very, very large wall. It's a neoclassical wall. The building was built in the 1820s it's got this beautiful stone wall so you see the shadows against that wall which i quite like
0: magnificent and and is it going to stay there or is it just on loan
1: it's there for 18 months
0: okay david would you like to tell everyone where they can find out a little bit more about you
1: yeah sure the uh website my website which has sort of ongoing information is uh davidbrewerwild.com um so should i spell that out
0: yes if you don't mind
1: yeah (laughs) D A uh, V I D B R E U E R W E I L dot com,
0: and that's your preferred place if people wanted to contact you, or do you have a social media platform you uh, like? Well,
1: they could they could also type my name into uh, Instagram, right? Uh, so that's that's also possible. And that's just that.
0: your name as well.
1: Yes, it is, but there's a hyphen between the Brewer and Weil on Instagram, I think
0: perfect well david thank you so much for taking the time today i really appreciate it
1: well thank you it's a great pleasure to talk to you
0: david has just that kind of intelligent mind that i want to talk to about art all day long he worked for a dozen years or so at sotheby's and uh, his first little nugget of wisdom i thought was that he thinks that's not a bad way to start out in life i'm sure lots of people would say that about working at sotheby's but He thinks that you can sustain those early years of a creative profession with something else, and that in that way, you can prevent yourself ruining your art. I think probably working at Sotheby's is not quite the same as maybe stacking shelves at Tesco's, but I do agree with him that if you can take the pressure off your art, it enables it to yield something when in the early days particularly, it might not be ready to to yield anything, it might need a little time. Now David says, though he sold very well from the outset, it wasn't necessarily a consistent thing, that it's hard to maintain the momentum of selling Now this, I think, is a very interesting point and very true observation. Even a breakout success might give you an enormous spike in revenue or publicity, interest, but it may not necessarily yield a long tail. Spikes in success are sort of easier to achieve they can be controlled you can have an exhibition you can produce a new piece of work and you can ensure that there's quite a lot of energy and buzz around that you can get pr going you can you can it's all in your hands i think momentum on the other hand is something that's quite different and that comes a lot later in a career it's possibly a signal of maturity of a creative business Now, I don't think it's something that is the result of one particular thing, it's actually a cumulative effect of all those little pushes that you did earlier on, so that you've kind of pushed yourself into the world's psyche, and suddenly somehow the world knows you I mean that might sound really woo woo but if you think about I don't know getting fit at the beginning of a process like that uh, you know every you have to really make quite a big effort to go running or to to do the exercises that you need to do and you know it's all quite hard work and you've got to really kind of psych yourself up for it and if you keep going with that and those pushes and that psychological trauma that you have to go through each time eventually it becomes just part of your routine and suddenly there's momentum there and suddenly you're fit and you can't say oh which run it was that made you fit it isn't one run it could have been any of them and it just happened as a collective thing That's my experience. I'm. I may be wrong, but I don't have to push my conservation business. I'm. I'm lucky enough to be able to be, in fact, highly selective about the work that I take on, and that is because it is a mature business. It's been running a long time, and I don't. And at the beginning, it would have been hustle, hustle, hustle. And I remember taking all sorts of projects that I wouldn't take now, but I but I know that they were instrumental in getting me to where I am at this particular point. Now, unfortunately, I can't say that specifically for my writing career as it is at the moment. I'm still in the spike stage where, you know, you have a book launch and it's fantastic, but eventually that momentum drops off. But I know this stage is a stage and that it's just an indicator that I am on my way. Now, David's fantastic private kingdom. I I have to talk about this because I haven't come across it it, with sculptors before. It's just a wonderful idea, this idea that there is a cast of characters who return, that there's uh, a world with a specific iconography and I think it's I mean, I've heard about it many times in epic fantasy novels. I mean, if you think about everybody knows Tolkien, um, but there's there's many, many others that are have the, their whole universe laid out. And the audience loves that. And it's such a clever idea for sculpture because an audience loves to follow a journey. They love to have the next episode and it's bringing an audience, uh, they're able to sort of access parts of the world and kind of figure out the world with sculpture because obviously so much is left out with sculpture. And so it means that they have kind of a very interactive um, involvement in, that, in the work. And so I can see why David's work is just, you know, so successful, because he really is tapping into that part of a mind which is kind of familiar to people from other types of creative work, but, you know, is less seen in sculpture. And I thought that what he talked about with how he comes up with this world was very interesting. He doesn't just let it come. He says that he has to imbibe such things and give them time and space to come about. And the way he does that is by using his sketchbook. So he allows uncensored sketching, a sort of free drawing method which lets loose all those ideas in his mind and lets them climb out onto his page. And This is just a brilliant technique. It's one that I use in a different form for writing. We call it free writing. And it's a kind of uncensored mode of working so that you really have a stint where you're kind of loosening up your brain and you're not saying no to anything. And you just get, it helps you to get into a flow state. I've never thought about it for art before but clearly why would it not work in any form of artwork and actually it brings me back to the fact that I've asked a lot of sculptors over the last couple of seasons about their creative process and often I kind of find like they don't really know what I'm talking about they kind of think "Mm, not quite sure what you mean but what I do mean is exactly this the idea that they may use, what method they may use as a gateway to access their sort of, their deeper parts of their mind, where their creative ideas come from. And I mean, maybe it's just that lots of professionals don't even need a gateway anymore. They're, they're, you know, they're so practiced in their art. But certainly in the writing world, it's a very acknowledged thing. Maybe that's because all writers fear writer's block and it's one of those things that they feel like they can't just leave up to chance and so what they do is they what they do is they use methods in order to access their ideas they clear the way for those ideas to be able to come to them and this might be that they seek them through free writing or something like deep research it's often something that Writers will go into a whole little period of submerging themselves in a historic period or a particular character who has influenced them in some way and then and they start to immerse themselves in it. Others I know go to exhibitions and they go even travel like long trips or short trips or they do something that takes them away from their desk. And the whole point in these little adventures is that they are pursuing the creative space without any expectations of yielding anything. They are just opening themselves up to the possibility of what may come, but it enables them to sort of clear away the craziness of life. Because you know what? When your life is every five minutes back to back with something it's really hard for ideas to be able to muscle in and you have to sort of push daily life out of the way in order for them to be able to flow up to the surface they're kind of delicate things like little bubbles and they can get squashed out really easily by hard edges which let's face it in the world there's many of Please support the podcast by buying a copy of my book, Bronze Behaving Badly, if you'd like to find out more about the best ways to care for bronze sculpture and the kinds of things that can do it a lot of harm. The book's written particularly for custodians of sculpture and collections and gives lots of useful advice but doesn't assume that you have any knowledge about bronze whatsoever. It's available in ebook and paperback from wherever books are sold online and you can order it into your independent book. Shops, but please support the show by picking up a copy. If you're looking for a new book, please consider one of my novels about the dark side of the art world, where sculpture is always at the heart of the story. You can get them on the show website, on the usual online retailers, or even better, keep your local library alive, ask for them in there. Thank you for joining me today. Sculpture Vulture has been brought to you by Antique Bronze.